1737, the tightly clustered hamlet of Northampton, Massachusetts, was home to approximately 200 families. Situated about 70 miles west of Boston, Northampton was a humble village on the western fringe of colonial civilization at that time. And that year, the congregational pastor, Jonathan Edwards, penned a short work entitled Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Works of God. It was a first-hand account of his experience of the first great awakening which visited colonial America between 1726 and 1746. In 1726, God's Spirit moved mightily among the Dutch Reformed churches of New Jersey. And soon the fire spread to Congregational and Presbyterian churches, later to Baptist churches and Methodist churches. This first great awakening reached its zenith in New England in the 1740s. As Pastor Edwards recorded and analyzed this powerful movement of God among the people of Northampton and surrounding areas, he devoted considerable attention to the young people of his town. Consider what he says. Thinking back, is a little bit different English, but I think the point is fairly clear. Licentiousness, as he described the youth scene, for some years prevailed among the youth of the town. There were many of them very much addicted to night walking. This is Northampton, 1737. There's not a lot to do. So you go night walking. And frequenting the tavern. As I understand, it was the tavern in the town. They were given to lewd practices, wherein some, by their example, exceedingly corrupted others. It was their manner very frequently to get together in conventions of both sexes for mirth and jollity, which they called frolics, parties. And they would often spend the greater part of the night in them without regard to any order in the families they belonged to. And indeed, family government did too much fail in the town. In other words, the Northampton youth scene was one of wild parties in utter disregard of parental authority. A fairly normal spot on the face of the earth. And by the way, for those of us who think the 1700s were this pristine age where no one did anything wrong, pretty typical situation right here in this small town, and it's very similar to the towns of our own culture today. But by 1737, that state of affairs had been radically altered. As Edwards and other pastors labored on in faithful preaching of God's Word, there came what Edwards described as a remarkable pouring out of the Spirit of God, resulting in a great ingathering of souls to Christ. People fell under severe conviction of sin, not only in the church services, but also when they heard that someone else had been converted. Many times people were extremely jealous that someone had been converted. They longed to know this movement of the Spirit of God in their own lives and would go about seeking God in unique ways. Some would fall in church services upon the floor in anguished fear at the thought that divine judgment may fall any moment. 
Unbelievers on a wide scale were visited with an overpowering sense of their sin and how profoundly their sin displeased God. And when the spirit of saving grace overtook converts, radical changes followed. Edwards reported that long-standing quarrels among townspeople dissipated into thin air. Gossip ceased. Family life was revived. And the town tavern in Northampton was largely abandoned. Where'd all the young people go? They went to two places. The new hangout in Northampton, Massachusetts for teens was the church and the pastor's house. In a radical transformation, the youth had become remarkably sensitive to the will of God and they craved instruction in his word. And the revival spread. In a six-month period of time, in this rural setting, on the fringes of nowhere, 300 conversions in six months. We look at it with a sense of holy jealousy, don't we? Such grand scale, wide scale, great awakenings to spiritual reality are extremely rare in the history of redemption. To my knowledge, none of us have ever experienced it or seen it happen on this level. But these things are so glorious in our eyes. As much as we might wish otherwise, we cannot create a great awakening by simply following a formula. Now, there are common themes of the revivals that have been studied through church history, but you can't just do these five things and revival will come. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. But we can learn to appreciate great awakenings and learn how they work. And I believe that as we study them and we learn how they work, we can sow the seeds of spiritual awakening in prayerful anticipation that God will again visit our land in this way. And if not, if not in a great awakening, that He would at least, in smaller spiritual awakenings among fewer individuals, in our circle of influence, open the eyes of the blind if it thrills your soul to think of 300 conversions in a six-month period of time in a rural area, if it excites you to think of a town transformed by the gospel, then let us return with anticipation today to the prophet Jonah and the record of one of the greatest spiritual awakenings recorded in history. But Jonah chapter 3, we'll pick up there. We remember in chapter 1, God calls Jonah to the land of Nineveh, to the land of Assyria, to the city of Nineveh, to proclaim repentance from sin. Jonah flees. He wants nothing to do with God's calling upon his life. He runs away. We read in chapter 1 and verse 17 that the Lord then, after Jonah is thrown into the raging sea to bring him back to God, he is swallowed by a great fish, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and he prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish. Here there is a revival in the heart of the speaker, the preacher. 
And Jonah's heart is changed and he calls out to God. And ultimately God in chapter 2 and verse 10 speaks to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now there's one thing for sure. While Jonah was sliming around in that fish, Nineveh did not evaporate into thin air. As an utterly exhausted, vomit-soaked, seaweed-wrapped prune of a man, Jonah crawls up onto the beach, and all the time the city of Nineveh bustles about its business on the highway to hell. And that brings Jonah back into the crosshairs of God's purposes. We read of Jonah's preaching to this great city of Nineveh in the first four verses of this chapter, chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. We're right back to where we started and learn again this lesson that when believers disobey God's word, it is always a dead-end rabbit trail. You go off the path of God, you're going to have to come back right on where you left it. The little diversion that Jonah took into the Mediterranean Sea and the exhaustive efforts God expended to recover his prophet brought everything back to the starting point. Sin is never in any way something that pays. It is always a loss of time, a loss of effort, and a loss of joy. Here he is again. Repentance then, as Jonah comes to know God again and to repent of his sin, repentance we learn is an admission to God that I have left the path of obedience. I am now abandoning that path and I am re-entering the path of God. But what we also learn here is that when God reissues a call to obedience, it is pure grace. This is not made explicit in the text but it is implied by the text. We don't always get a second chance to obey God's call. There are prophets who failed, and there are prophets who had no second opportunity because of their sin. But Jonah does have that opportunity. While he does not like this call any more now than he did before, he recognizes it as God's grace to him, and he honors this opportunity despite what it may mean to his reputation as a prophet. But what I think also is key here in these first two verses is the message itself. Nineveh needs what? Nineveh needs God's word. That's what she needs. God puts that word in the mouth of his prophet, Jonah, and God commissions this prophet to deliver that message to the Ninevites intact. Nineveh needs God's word, not Jonah's word. And Jonah needs to obey God's call upon his life. How similar it is for us today. It is God's word that matters. It is we who are the heralds of that truth. And Jonah becomes that herald. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It was a long journey, some 500 miles depending where he was deposited on the beach, but about 500 miles. It was a long journey. It doesn't matter to the text what happened along the way. But he began that journey, and he headed toward Nineveh and the call of God. He now submits to God's command to speak to the Ninevites. In the middle of verse 3, we have a parenthetical note. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. 
And there's all kinds of debate that swirls around this Hebrew text and the possibility that this city could possibly be that great at this time in history. I'm going to spare you the tedious details on all of that, but suffice it to say, Nineveh, with its surrounding environs, was a sizable and ancient city whose teeming masses stirred the heart of God with compassion. You may have a marginal note there as to the actual and literal reading of the text. A great city to God, depending on how we take that phrase, it was a city that perhaps stirred the compassion of God because of its greatness. It reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? How did Jesus think when he saw the multitudes? He saw these great crowds and it stirred up the compassion of his heart. He saw individuals and compassion was stirred. But when he saw these teeming masses of people, it is as if it hit him in a great movement of the heart of compassion for those lost sheep without a shepherd. And I think this is more than than just a parenthetical note. I think that what this is, this is the very heart that motivates this simple note. This heart of God of compassion, the compassion that Jesus had for the multitudes. And getting back to it, in verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, and going a day's journey, he called out to the city. Again, there's great debate on what this means to have traveled into the city for an entire day. Now let's remember, Jonah's not jogging, he's not on a bicycle or in a car, He doesn't have jogging shoes and shorts, and he's making his way through as fast as he can. He's probably going quite slowly, very likely gathering a crowd around him as he enters into the city. And some have suggested that perhaps there was also diplomatic protocol at various checkpoints through the city. This is a time of ancient warfare, a militaristic society, and it's doubtful that a prophet from another nation would just walk into town. And so, taking his time, working his way through this sizable area, he comes about a day's journey and cries out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The following verses indicate that this is the gist of Jonah's message. People weren't confused by what he's saying. Well, what do you mean? Why are we going to be overthrown? What's, who's going to overthrow us? What's going to happen? They don't ask these questions. Apparently there's more information that is given. But in a relatively short period of time, the God of heaven will judge Nineveh for her sin. And that simple, straightforward word from God detonates with unprecedented force in the hearts of the Ninevites. Jonah preaches here with what has often been called unction. And we find not only in his preaching, but now as the Ninevites respond, we see that they respond with repentance. First of all, the people, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is what we call a message of unction, a message that is uniquely directed by God's mercy to the heart of those who are unbelieving. Sinclair Ferguson reminded me of E.M. Bounds' writings on the power through prayer and the chapter that he has in that book on unction where he quotes a renowned Scottish preacher who said, we cannot know of unction what it is or from whence it cometh, but with a sweet violence it pierceth into the heart and affections and it comes immediately from the Lord. 
that sweet violence. As the word of God pierces the hard and cold heart. It is a unique work of God. Unction makes the hearer weep like a child and live like a giant. That a great line. This divine unction is the one distinguishing feature that separates true gospel preaching from all other methods of presenting truth. Unction in the preacher puts God in the gospel. Without the unction, God is absent, and the gospel is left to the low and unsatisfactory forces that the ingenuity, interest, or talents of men can devise to enforce and project its doctrines. In other words, we can be very articulate and very innovative in the way that we proclaim the truth of God, and it can mean nothing. I think this unction, this anointing, obviously is the work of the Spirit of God who takes His Word and drives it home to cold hearts. People wake up and see reality in the power of this Word. In this mysterious work of God, these pagan listeners suddenly see it. They understand. They realize that they are objects of God's wrath. They put on sackcloth, a cheap, very coarse fabric made of goat hair, a sign of utter humiliation, a point that's further emphasized by their fasting. This is a great awakening. Where were you on Thursday? I found myself talking to an an old friend that I'd pointed to Christ many years ago. We got together for lunch, and we were sitting on a bank of windows at a restaurant, and that storm rolled through. We had not talked for years, and we had a lot to talk about, very important things, but we were both having a really hard time concentrating. It got so dark, the cars started turning on their headlights, and then the rain started to come, and hail was hitting, and we kept looking and saying, I wonder if we need to find a table in the center of the restaurant here because this is looking really, really bad. Just think of that analogy, and perhaps you were in a place something like that, and you know what I'm saying. What if we were sitting in a restaurant where there were no windows? And it was well insulated. I don't know that we would have ever known that anything was happening. But when you get a vision of the reality that is around you, you begin to adjust. You begin to think very differently. You begin to think of shelter in this situation. And in a way of thinking, that is what happens here with these pagan believers. Suddenly they realize the reality that's around them. It's as if the wall just came falling down and they have a vision of this storm that is right on their heads and is about to take them And all they can think about now is not commerce and business and problems and the issues of daily life, but is to find refuge from the divine wrath. Are these people that are religious idiots? They don't know anything? They just cling to small myths because they have no other idea? No, these are people that are seeing the real world. And they're making adjustments. Radical adjustments as they put on sackcloth and set aside food. We find the response of the people. We find the same response in the heart of the king. Verse 6, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. We have, first of all, his personal response to this message of doom. 
the removal from the throne of his palace for the public humiliation of a seat in the dust, and the removal of his rich vestments for sackcloth provide evidence that this pagan king had also been awakened to reality. The storm was coming. It was real. He does not rage against God. He does not dismiss the prophet as a lunatic. In a remarkable act, this, profound, this proud king says with his actions, God is king, and he's coming. We find, secondly, his proclamation regarding the message, not only a personal response, but he acts as the king of Nineveh. Verse 7, as he issues a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, this is a group effort, all agree, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, for which the Assyrians were so noted. All are to participate in public humiliation before God. And the sackcloth and fasting are to serve merely as signs of a much deeper interchange of heart. Notice what this pagan king is saying. Let everyone turn from his evil way. That is repentance. To say that our way is wrong and we are going to change course. And let everyone turn from his violence, from the violence that is in his hands. True repentance is a sign of genuine spiritual awakening. A turning from our sin and an embracing of God's way. I'm reminded of the Welsh Revival in 1904 where we saw this very thing happen. A turning from sin and an embrace of God's way on a large scale. February 1904, there was a youth meeting in a small town. And in that meeting, there was a stirring of the Spirit of God and the young people drew close to God in that meeting. And it spread from that place to other towns. And over the next two years, Wales was shaken to the core by an overwhelming sense of sin and pending judgment and the transforming grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is hard to believe. It makes your skin tingle. But it is estimated that in a six-month period of time in this small nation... 150,000 Welsh profess faith in Jesus Christ. In six months, 150,000 people. And there's debate saying that that estimate is probably far short of reality. Entire communities were transformed. Drunkenness and theft, which had been so rampant in Wales, nearly ceased. It became commonplace for magistrates to report for duty at court only to find that there was not a single case on their dockets to prosecute. They're out of business. They had a hope for the revival to end. To have a job. Bills were paid. Disputes were settled. The poor were cared for. And this is the greatest story. 
The notoriously filthy language of the coal miners was so radically transformed that the pit ponies that worked the mines became incorrigible and confused. They didn't know how to operate without the swearing and cursing. They had to be retrained to listen to these men. Think of this. The mines in Wales echoed no longer with swearing and gossip and wicked stories and jokes, but with prayers and hymns. And with talk of the gospel. The very old woman in Wales, who recently spoke with one of my professors, and he asked her this, is that possibly true? And she says, yes, it is. The culture was transformed. And this is the evidence of genuine awakening, that there is a repentance which leads to a change of life. And it's a beautiful thing to behold. Now, there have been many so-called revivals and great spiritual awakenings in the history of humanity that have shown great fervor and excitement and all kinds of crazy things happening. There's places right now where people are throwing up and barking like dogs and rolling around on the ground and all kinds of wild things that are claimed to be evidences of the Spirit of God. But what doesn't change is the lifestyle. There's tremendous interest in all that's happening. But people don't set aside the sins of the flesh, turn from their sin, and walk in holiness of life. Where there's holiness of life, there's evidence of genuine spiritual awakening. And that's what we see in this wicked city of Nineveh. The king responds personally. He responds publicly And then we see the king's hope expressed in that public response, verse 9, where he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. If we repent of our sin, if we turn from our evil, perhaps God will repent of his judgment, turn from his plan to punish us. Now, this is a pagan king speaking, and it's amazing evidence of the Spirit of God working here that his thoughts are very parallel to a direct message that God gave to the prophet Joel in chapter 2. Return to the Lord your God, Joel prophesied, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That is, he turns from his intended judgment when there's repentance. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing instead of judgment. Here we find virtually these same words in verse 14 of Joel 2 in the mouth of this pagan king. Perhaps God will prove merciful. Will he? Verse 10. When God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Those are words of grace. Those are words of hope. 
consistent with merciful character and long-suffering patience, in keeping with his steadfast love, God relents. As Jonah clearly understood, chapter 4, God delights to forgive sinners, even the worst of sinners. There is no one that is beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace. No one anywhere. No people are separated from that power. It is not so much a matter of God changing His mind here, although there's much debate on that. I I think in anthropomorphic terms, that is an acceptable concept that God changes His mind. But this is more a matter of God's warning of pending doom serving as a subtle call to repentance and His call to repentance serving as an offer of forgiveness. What we find playing out here for us in this pagan setting is evidenced in the classic statement of God's mercy and and of our repentance in Jeremiah 18. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That is the character of our God. And in that truth, there is great hope. There is great hope for sinners. God relents from pending plans of judgment. There is a personal message in this narrative for each one of us. God is a God of judgment. He is a God of high and holy standard. And He calls upon sinners to repent, to turn from their sin, and to come into His way. Is God convicting you at this point of sin from which you must turn? There is only one response. The response is not to ignore it. The response is clearly not to continue in it. The response, as we learn from this text of Scripture amidst many others, is to repent and to change. There is mercy with the Lord for those who repent. For those who do not, we continue in our sin. You may be here today separated from the love of God in Christ. You do not know about how God will face you in the future when you meet Him Please understand that what the Bible teaches is that you are a sinner fully deserving of God's judgment. As is true with each one of us over and over again, you have violated His will and you have run from His wisdom. You have chosen your way instead of His over and over again as if you are God and He is junk. And for this, there is only one just penalty, and that is for the wrath of God to come down and overwhelm you in judgment. That is all that is proper and just in a world which is led by a God of perfect holiness. But God, in His mercy, has dealt with the issue. He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. 
such that if you repent of your sin and embrace his death and resurrection as your rescue from judgment, you will be saved from God's wrath and receive his mercy. As we read in Romans 10 this morning, those who believe will be saved from God's wrath. Those who repent of their sin and turn to embrace this message as God enlightens your eyes to see reality will receive the mercy of God, not because you've bought it or deserve it, but because He's a God of grace. There are those of us who have embraced this message. We know that we have. The Spirit of God dwells within us and bears witness to our knowledge of Christ We rejoice to think of great awakenings, but we also deal with sin and idolatry, don't we? It's insanity. As we look at it in the clear revelation of God's Word, to walk in sin is insanity. It is foolishness. It will get us nowhere. And the only response to this text of Scripture and to God's Word to us today is to repent to know that our sin is dragging us away from the purposes of God. It is keeping us away from what God desires for our hearts and for the transformation of a lost world. Come back to Him. Repent. Turn. And receive the forgiveness of Jesus again. Not for your eternal salvation, but for your faithful relationship with Christ today. Turn. Don't go the path of Jonah and waste your time and effort and lose your joy by loving an idol. Turn. As we consider this great awakening, we see that, as is quite obvious, but to think about it I think is helpful, there are in great awakenings three parties. There is the obedient believer who is willing to obey God by faithfully proclaiming God's word to sinners. By taking the message of salvation and speaking it clearly and accurately and faithfully. Saying as God's call is upon all of us, saying that I am responsible to take this message of life to lost sinners. And to make clear the work that Jesus Christ has done. There are obedient believers in Great Awakenings. Secondly, there are unbelievers who, upon hearing the message of salvation, repent of their sin, embrace the forgiveness of God, and see the light. They're not unbelievers who are sort of just held up in the way that they are and told how pretty good they are in the end, and who see themselves as worthy of the forgiveness of God and the grace of God. They're people who see themselves as unworthy. As people where there is the pending doom upon their heads. Thirdly, the third party is Almighty God, who moves with power to take His Word and to drive it home to the unbeliever, and only God can do this. We can have the other two there. We can have faithful believers who are proclaiming the gospel. You can even have unbelievers who really have a desire, in some sense of the term, to hear the message of repentance. They're sick of dealing with sin. But apart from the movement of the Spirit of God, no one will respond savingly. It's interesting how clear this was in Northampton and and other places surrounding the New England revival. As I mentioned, there were people who would see their friends converted to Christ and they'd be jealous. 
We would just say, well, just, just sit down here and pray a prayer and you'll be saved. Whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. It's as simple as that. They realize that there had to be a work of God. It's not just as simple as that. That God had to do a work of transformation within the heart. The message must be clear and delivered by obedient believers. The unbeliever must realize the pending doom and repent, but God must act to transform the heart. So the issue is not so much that believers have such hard hearts, which they do, as it is that we as believers are disobedient to our calling to proclaim the word. The issue is not merely that the gospel is unintelligible to the unbeliever, unaided, which it is. But the issue is that we are not faithful to the message. I picked up the newspaper very recently. It might have even been yesterday morning or the day before. It's very fresh, and perhaps you read the article of an urban Christian ministry seeking to provide housing for low-income families. Who can argue with that? A noble task, it would seem. The director says that the goal as a Christian organization is to, quote, perpetuate hope. Who can argue with that? Sounds good. And I, I ask the question, how? How do you perpetuate hope in this urban ministry of finding housing for needy families? The director says that the ministry is about redemption. I'm on the page. This is sounding good. Redemption of houses, careers, and credit ratings. There's a redemptive thread, he said to the reporter, that runs through everything we do. And that's good rhetoric. But what is redemption? It is in this sense, as it is presented here to the public, a redemption of houses and careers and credit ratings. Is it a redemption from sin? Here's the words of the director. It's a ministry of presence. It's what Jesus did. He became flesh and lived among us. We're neighbors. We're not mentors. We're not missionaries. We're not proselytizers. We're a bridge between the neighborhood and the community at large. End of article. May I suggest that that is not a message that will ever lead to a great awakening. As much as we rejoice in those who are helping people in need and commend it, that is never going to save a soul from the greatest of all tragedies, the judgment of God. Jesus was more than a neighbor. He was a prophet from God who came with a message of redemption. He was a redeemer from sin and a bridge that linked not just small communities to larger communities. He was a bridge that linked the sinner to God. This self-perception of this ministry as revealed in the newspaper for hundreds of thousands to see is entirely devoid of the gospel. It will help ease pain for which we rejoice, but without transforming anyone for which we weep.
not saying that I understand all there is to know about this ministry, and that's really not at issue here. I'm saying that what is presented for the public is a redemption without a redeemer. And that message of hope and redemption, the words they've used, without reference to repentance from or forgiveness for sin, is a message that is ultimately devoid of mercy. And it is ultimately empty. We can build nice houses from which people will go to hell from and never tell them there's a fire that's coming down on your head. What have we done? What help have we been? Let's do both. Faithful proclamation of the word of God can awaken the dead, and that is the ultimate message of hope and redemption. I'll go more quickly, but I want to add just a couple of more points. Great awakenings, secondly, are commonly initiated by young people. This is an amazing thing. The readings about great awakenings and revival is they virtually always start with the youth of the church, the youth of the community. There's reasons for that, I think. But it certainly says to us as we learn from this. Now, we don't see this here in the book of Jonah as much. We have just a general response on the part of the people. But when it comes to God moving historically among his people, there is a movement that comes on the part of unbelievers, but there is a movement that usually is initiated by the young people of a local church. And I say to our young people, don't wait around for the older generation. Go after God. Perhaps He's calling you to a Nineveh. Go. Perhaps He is calling you to seek His face uniquely in repentance and belief. To take on a grand challenge for God. Do it. Get counsel. But don't ask permission. Understood in the right way. Get counsel. Don't run on your own. But listen to the voice of God. Here am I. Send me. Wherever you want me to go. To do whatever you want me to do. Young people, the call is there for you equally. With all others. And may we who are older and graying. If there's any to gray that's left. May we set the model and the example. You, above all young people, seek God. Seek His face. Run after Him and do His bidding. Thirdly, great awakenings on a small scale are just as valuable as great awakenings on a large scale. Again, a point that simply is application from the text, not taught here specifically. But let's admit, as we look at Jonah 3, we're green with spiritual envy. We wish we could walk into Minneapolis and see this happen. To go down on 7th Street and Nicollet or somewhere down there and proclaim a simple, straightforward message and watch the whole city shut down as people weep, seeking the forgiveness of God. How we would love to see that happen. But let us remember, we cannot make that happen necessarily, but what God sometimes does on a large scale among many people, 
he is doing all the time on a smaller scale among individuals. And as we take that very same message, same issue, obedient believer with the accurate knowledge of the Word of God calling upon the unbeliever to repent, and we depend in faith upon the power of God, we can see spiritual awakenings. When I talk about Northampton and the youth scene there, when we talk about the young people in, the, in Wales, and we look at these great changes, those very changes are evidence in the lives of many in this assembly today. You lived for the devil. You lived in godlessness and rebellion against him. Indeed, every one of us on some level has done so. But God has come in His mercy. The gospel was proclaimed to you and you were transformed. As we sow those seeds, we're sowing the seeds for the great awakening that may come. But we are also sowing the seeds of the small awakenings that God will bring as believers are faithful to the Word, as unbelievers repent of their sin, and as God chooses to work in and through us. And may we pray to that end. May we plead with God that he would turn hearts to saving faith in Christ and that he would use us as his instruments to do this merciful work in this fallen world. May our gospel be pure. May our hearts be pure. May we obey Christ and his call to proclaim the gospel of salvation. And may God choose in his grace to bless us and to see lives saved. Let's bow for prayer and come before his throne directly and ask him for this grace. Father, in this assembly, there are many who have come out of godless backgrounds and have been radically transformed. And we thank you for that evidence of spiritual awakening. We thank you for those who cursed you, and then one day in the context of this assembly stood in the waters of baptism declaring that they would be the followers of Jesus Christ until they died. We thank you for those who cursed you and ran away and pursued all kinds of idols who you brought to a place where they confessed Jesus as Lord and trusted him as their Savior and coming King. And even for those who have walked within Christian families, God, we know that it takes an absolute work of God to save. And we rejoice together at that power that you have evidenced within our families knowing that there are some who are drawn out of a godless world, but knowing that those growing up in a Christian home can very well end up in it if they don't respond. God, we thank you for that wide response in this assembly. And we plead with you that we might see it more. That you would bring a revival to this downtown area. That there would be spiritual awakening that takes place. How many times, Father, have we brought people in from this neighborhood, this community, of all stripes and walks of life and backgrounds and proclaimed the gospel and seen the water run off the hard soil? 
God, we plead that you'd soften hearts and do what you alone can do. And Father, if anyone trusts you as Savior, anyone, anywhere, we will give you the glory. We know that it does not lie within us, but I pray that we as your people would be faithful. And God, if it is your mercy that you would open the eyes of someone who is blind to spiritual reality today, that they would see the pending doom of divine judgment and that they'd run into your kind arms for safety and forgiveness. Bring that day of salvation today, we pray in Christ's name.